Hey, this is Harriet from Choa Magazine. If I can start off with giving、um, some broad brushstrokes of what this conversation will be like、um, today, I'm joined by Esther Kim, who is a financial advisor, an educator, and a wellness advocate. We are going to talk about what it means to exist and move through some of the intersections of finances, public education, and The climate crisis, and I want to acknowledge that there are a lot of different experiences when it comes to existing in this space. And with what's going on currently, I want to acknowledge that there are a lot of land defenders in Wet'suwet'en and across Canada who are doing the hard work when it comes to some of these intersections in fighting climate change and. Fighting mass profits, and I also want to say that we asked Esther to join us today to speak from her own experiences, and so she, of course, speaks for herself and does not speak on behalf of all financial advisors or educators. So, yeah. With that said, I want to welcome Esther.、Um, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Harriet. A pleasure and a privilege to be here. We are speaking in Toronto,、uh, Canada, where we are on the traditional territories of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. That is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis. Yeah, I'll go, go go right into the first question, Esther. Can I ask you what does an average workday or work week look for you look like for you? Sure, no problem. So for myself,、um, during the weekday, I'm a teacher at a public school with our local school board. So I run a financial service and education and brokerage services.、Uh, so. On weekday evenings, I'm either at the office or out on the field helping families with their financial planning or running financial literacy seminars, depending on what's going on on my calendar. And then on weekends as well, I'm at the office. And then depending on、uh, client appointments,、uh, weekends are usually actually busier because people are off, right? So, and what is your relationship to water, whether that is personally or professionally? So, when you first sent me the questions and I saw this question there, I was like, "Wow!" I, in some way, feel like it's such a big question because,、uh, for me, water has always—I've always recognized it as a finite resource.、Um, I actually studied sociology and women's studies in university, so I have a huge conscious awareness around,、um, you know, the environment and water and. Uh, we've we've even studied water and the lack of water and you know conflicts that surround it. For it's I guess it's a struggle every day between trying to be responsible,、um, but also being、uh, a citizen in a developed country and you know sometimes convenience trump social responsibility. So,、uh, but I do what I can. I mean, I I personally don't like drinking out of bottled water if I can help it. I prefer the taste of tap water,、um, but even when we have events, I prefer to have、uh, like wa- jugs of water over, you know, boxes of 
bottled water that's available for people. So, for, so little things like that, I think, do matter uh, when it comes to everyday uh, living. I'm very conscious of how much water I'm spending. But at the same time, you know, I do enjoy getting my laundry done. And I'll be honest, I, I really enjoy getting my dishwasher <laughs> done through, um, like dishes washed through a machine rather than me having to do dishwashing all the time. So yeah, it is a constant internal struggle. Uh, but I think it's also I do my best in terms of being conscious and aware. Does this uh, consciousness ever, does it impact the way that you budget your money uh, and plan for the long term? I mean, water or climate crisis in general, um, as you can see, the world is kind of going very wonky with the climate and that leads to all sorts of natural disasters. And so definitely um, when it comes to planning, I make sure to do all risk assessments. So um, you can see risk in terms of casualty, uh, so home and auto insurance and whatnot, like property. But there's also risk assessment when it comes to your own health and your ability to work. And um, so I definitely make sure that those areas are covered. Um, also, I am conscious of making sure that I have enough money for food because, as you know, grocery has gotten a lot more expensive and a lot of it has to do with, you know, the climate crisis. And so um, budgeting enough for food and like healthy food, especially. Um, but then, you know, all of these things play into housing as well, as well, like in terms of materials and so as we live in the city, things are becoming very expensive. And we've talked about this before, right? And somewhere like outside of here. So uh, it's definitely something I'm conscious of. And um, even traveling, I'm always, you know, very particular about when I travel or to where or how I get there. So yeah, it plays out in so many different ways. Can I ask how this plays in your conversations with family or partners? Because obviously we have our individual financial responsibilities, but a lot of us have shared responsibilities when it comes to finances, whether that's dependents or parents or siblings or romantic partners. For my per uh, so you're talking about me personally? Yeah, just yeah. kind of how, generally speaking, how does this mm -hmm. consciousness also impact the ways that you talk about money and plan for money mm -hmm. in your relationships? So... Right now, in terms of my own family, like uh, my parents are in Korea, so a lot of our conversations don't happen as frequently as I'd like in terms of deep financial uh, planning. But that's because you know there's time difference, and you know, like it just out of living away from them for so long. Uh, for my own personal family experience, it's been that the communication hasn't always been as frequent as I'd like for it to be. Um, but they are visiting this April, and I am looking forward to that because I am um, going to sit down with them and really talk to them about, you know, future planning for our own family. They are no longer young, <laughs> and so we got to make sure everything's in place, and I want to do that while they're here in Canada. Um, and then also for my siblings, uh, our conversations, I, I would say, doesn't really necessarily revolve around uh, but money in terms of climate crisis, per se, it's just more for everyday planning or thinking about our parents, really. That would really be the point of conversation when it comes to money. 
Um, and then for my own romantic partner, it's just more about reminding my partner to, you know, not be wasteful or let's try to kind of pool our resources when it comes to doing certain things. So we're not, yeah, wasting water or wasting time or wasting other people's time and resources, right? So it's an ongoing conversation more so with my partner just because that's who I see more regularly. My, my siblings, I don't see them as, as regularly. And then my parents are like completely somewhere else. So I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, having these conversations are often deeply personal. So thank you for sharing. Thinking in uh, more general terms, we shared a report with you about what some experts are saying in regards to the relationship between the threats from the climate crisis with the next financial crisis. You don't have to make any big predictions, but I think in general it's hard or becoming harder to think about finances, whether that's individually or systemically, without at least acknowledging how um, the climate risks are affecting us in one way or another. You mentioned some of the risks already. The impacts on residential areas from more frequent and more intense natural disasters. And for us in Toronto, we're seeing this uh, simultaneously with a housing crisis on our food system across the whole value chain from farming the land to the increased prices of groceries for us as consumers. We're seeing that on our healthcare system and more increasingly on migration in, in its various forms. Um, what are your general thoughts or expectations on how things might change? Um, you're just saying how it doesn't necessarily affect your day-to-day -day conversations about money. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Uh, including myself, um, as well as for those who are privileged enough to not have to think about these things as often. Um, this is not to say that we have to or should talk about money and the climate crisis 24-7, but do you think moving forward people are going to have to factor these risks into our day-to-day -day conversations about money? I mean... Especially now, I, I think more so in the news, we're, we're hearing more about climate change, right? Like, especially in today's day and age, more so than, let's say, five, ten years ago, even, even though the conversation started probably before then. Um, but in terms of how our everyday conversation goes, I think there definitely would be more awareness because we're also inundated by social media and just online um, sources of news, whether it be real or fake news. But uh, those things, the, the wider exposure, I guess, would be the word um, of uh, information, I think will make us naturally talk about those things a bit more, if not directly climate crisis, it would be the effects of it on um, whether it be due to the costs of the rising cost of housing, food, or like for me, the thing that scares me really is, you know, when, when our water, if and when, hopefully it doesn't get to that point, but when the water um, situation does become a crisis, even here, I mean, it's already a crisis in other parts of the world. We, we can acknowledge that for sure. But when we feel it here, I think that would be very scary because it's so close to home. Um, and I, I just imagine situations where 
when whenever you have a scarce resource, human beings may not always act, you know, their best. And so it could lead to so many different um, safety concerns as well, right? So I think that to me, for me, um, it's, it's a conversation I have a lot in my head, if not with other people, but it is something that's kind of lingering at the back of my head whenever I see news um, about climate change. Um, and also just thinking about our demographic overall in North America, but even in Asia, right? Like we have a lot of, uh, more elderly people, you know, aging and, and that leads to a lot more vulnerable people, right? So uh yeah i it's 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 a tricky balance between having that conversation versus not having it and then having the conversation with yourself and with others and then putting yourself in a situation where you're taking care of yourself and your own finances and and but also being able to contribute or help others right so i think it's a constant tug of war if that makes any sense mm -hmm. I was thinking about this uh, earlier, how when it comes to things like climate change and the finances and education, we'll talk about a little bit later, but of course, these are all very broad topics, but I think about how these things almost function in the same way in my body, like in terms of my like physical reactions to these things. Like if I am feeling very anxious one day, like my body's reaction to it feels kind of the same when I'm thinking about like, oh, am I doing enough for my finances or am I doing enough to take care of the earth? And um, and I do think about how both of these things kind of have to hold a space in my head where it's like I have to think about myself today, but how much room do I have to think about the like what I can imagine and how I can imagine it 10 years, 20 years, 50 years down the line. And that is such a hard thing to do, let alone with other people. Um, so yeah, I definitely feel that a lot. Um, can I ask what kind of people generally do you work with? Are they young people? Are they families? Are they older you people? Client-wise, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, actually, it's a good mix. Um, we're talking about different walks of life, different ethnicities, different occupations. Um, Mostly middle market individuals and families. Um, Sorry, when you say middle market, do you mm -hmm. mean like middle income or? Yes. Okay. So uh, the financial services industry generally is, aside from the banks, but even the banks, um, beyond the retail level of the banks, really the, the ones that get the phone calls are those who have a lot of money in their bank accounts, right? So for everyone else who is more of the middle income um, earner, you only know the banks to do everything with the banks, but really they might not be the best place for you to put your money at, right? So um, so that's why I do enjoy working with the middle market family because uh, often I'm able to help them and educate them about what's out there and how the Canadian system works when it comes to uh, where we put our money um, and also just teaching them basic financial concepts because we don't get financial literacy in school, or at least that wasn't the case for me, and I, I know for a lot of people as well. And I was born and raised in Canada for the most part. So, and I'm a current, I'm currently a public school teacher, so I don't see still a lot of financial literacy being taught. So, um, 
when I, whether I'm at school or whether I'm sitting down with an individual or a family, I, I constantly feel like I'm teaching um, just different things. So when I'm sitting down with families, it's definitely going over basic financial concepts. There aren't a lot that you have to master, but if you understand some, then that already can be very powerful. And it's just a matter of implementing them, right? And then knowing what's out there. So that's where I can help um, in terms of education. Uh, providing awareness about what's out there um but uh yeah i i find that the middle market is often the market that's left behind um from the financial services industry and um whether even if it's not a middle income earner it's someone who's a high earner so someone who's self-employed business um owner or even like a dentist or lawyer often they don't understand the whole financial system as a whole right um and even teachers like i yeah you'd, you'd be surprised how much teachers don't know anything about their own finances partly because there's a pension fund for teachers um as opposed to like putting away for rsps right so so yeah i work with a very diverse group um and I guess the planning really does come down to what their goals are and what their situation is. Um, and there can be some cultural aspect to that as well. In terms of the sort of challenges or kind of awareness that people might have in thinking of the climate impacts on their or the climate risks in their financial decisions, do you get a lot of people bringing that up when they come to you? climate risks yeah like the ones that we kind of talked about earlier mm -hmm. like is my home safe when wildfires hit is that part of my insurance kind of thing like do you get a lot of people concerned about that sort of thing uh not so much about wildfires um i think people are if anything more concerned about uh, health emergencies okay uh, maybe because i guess in toronto we're a little bit i guess uh bit more comfortable or cushioned off from all the yeah. natural disasters thankfully um but that being said uh, what we do see a lot more is a lot of illnesses at a younger age or you know someone's so and so you know being hit with this and that so i think uh, for for the clients that i work with a lot of times the emergency sort of pieces more around health emergencies rather than casualty um um, disastrous sort of situations um, but also the other factor um, would be more around long-term care as well so more so than wildfires I yeah. see I guess uh, wildfires that was the first thing that came to mind but I guess in Toronto we're more affected by kind of like flash flooding yeah, flooding's but yeah. I don't know if that's like a concern I guess with again with I keep going back to insurance but um, I guess that's just one example of, of what could possibly happen, but... Um, well, that aside, I do have clients who are, not all, but like a handful that are, that do ask the questions about um, when they invest in what are funds, like what are they supporting, right? So I do have some people who are asking those questions. Um, surprisingly, not as much as I'd like, <laughs> mm -hmm. personally, but um, definitely I think the conversation is, uh, going to happen even more moving forward. Um, but I do have some friends who are definitely more socially aware and do ask those questions, in which case then I talk 
to them about, you know, there are certain companies that have socially responsible investing type of funds, but not all companies necessarily have that or have a wide range of it. So, yeah, but that conversation does happen time to time. Right. Okay. I want to talk a little bit more about that, but I'm going to put that on hold for a minute because he also brought up the cultural aspect of uh, of it. And I want to ask you if, so I think of uh, Korean parents or I want to say like around the 50 to 60 ish, like age range, uh, where they have these, what I call social banks. I'm not sure if that's like an actual phenomenon of sorts. Um, and I, it's not something I like really know a lot about or really understand as someone who is just kind of noticing it. Uh, but they, I say social banks, but I really mean these sort of informal, casual sort of lending and borrowing system. And I don't know how much of that is just a way to strengthen community bonds or if it's actually, and how much of it is kind of a necessity as like racialized folks and being underserved by mainstream financial industry. But I do imagine that in, that is kind of a universal thing among racialized communities in general, not just the com- Korean community specifically. Uh, but I do wonder if these kinds of community-based or so- socio-cultural relationships to money factor into your work with clients and maybe more specifically like older clients. Um, so, cause when you, when you, uh, bring that up, I also remember times growing up when we would have another like Korean woman, not necessarily a friend, a family friend, but like someone that would come over and I see her and my mom like counting money. So it brought up memories of that, but I do agree with you. I think it, it may, um, been out of necessity at the time, um, especially for our parents who are immigrants coming in with you know language barrier and whatnot um i find now well currently with the clients that i work with that are um you know immigrants or a couple generations in um i find that uh this the, the the principles of group economics is what i will call it is not necessarily there when it comes to lending and borrowing per se, because I think most people now are able to access the banks because we have, you know, branches that are completely Korean, you know, <laughs> that yeah. young and finish if you go there. So, um, but I do think uh, how group economics does play a factor is when, you know, people or families kind of share the same homes or buy homes together, right? Whether it be to leverage each other's credit because now housing prices are so much or it's because you know within the korean culture we have that expectation of living with our grandparents or at least caring for our parents when they get older kind of thing right so i see it being played out more in that sense in terms of um maybe the insurance and retirement piece of long-term care but um, not so much when it comes to the lending piece i see for myself personally anyway before we got on to the conversation about the cultural aspect, you mentioned that there are some people who come to you with questions about socially responsible investing. I want to talk a little bit about making socially responsible decisions that are aligned with our values. 
and specifically decisions that might be in tension with other values that we hold and or might be in the context in of big corporate power. I'll give you an example. I bank with CABC and I went to McGill, which are both big institutional players in our society and both have relationships with fossil fuels, which uh, not everyone may know about. Um, there's a big movement from the ground up that is pushing for fossil fuel divestment, including by these two institutions. Um, of course, not everyone is going to agree with this, but I am someone who is in the camp of wanting these institutions and beyond to divest, and I am also someone in the um, that talks pretty openly, I'd say, against fossil fuels, but admittedly something that maybe I don't talk enough about is how I am someone who benefits greatly slash gains a lot of value from having graduated from this school, and I mean that both professionally and personally. And from continuing to bank with CIBC, um, in terms of convenience, longevity, etc., um, I think a lot of the, us carry these kinds of opposing or contradicting truths, um, especially, like I said, in the context of these sorts of big corporate powers that you can't necessarily go head-to-head with. Um, so how do you go about making these mindful financial decisions in these kinds of situations? I, you know, again, I, it comes down to that tug-of-war thing again, right? Where you're um, a citizen of a capitalist society yeah. that's participating in certain things and investing in certain areas. Um, and you as an individual sometimes feels very, you, you feel small or limited in terms of your choices. Um, but at the same time, I, I wouldn't take the power away from one person either because your money speaks a lot. Where you put your money really speaks volumes for companies, right? At the end of the day, you can vote with your money. Um, so I think it's just a matter of doing a bit more research um, sh- if you're interested in, you know, spending uh so that it aligns with your values. Um, but of course, you can't research everything that you eat and sleep and work and, you know, all the environment around you. But um, I think it is a fine balance of trying to, if you are the type to want to align your values to where you spend your money, it's going to be a constant tug of war because you care. <laughs> I think it's always easier to be ignorant, but that's no excuse either, right? Especially when things are so... Um, urgent at this point in time Um, but what I would say going back to the individual power is you know a lot of it if you if you're constantly just trying to survive yourself you can't really make huge positive change beyond right in your community I mean you can people have without money but um, overall you always want to put the oxygen mask on yourself and um, have certain things uh, going for you so that you can help others without worrying about your own situation rather than digging yourself a hold. So um, when I think about individuals and what they can do is 
Uh, like little things I can think about is, you know, if you if you know certain companies are doing certain things, um, whether it be to animals or to the, the environment, uh, you really don't have to spend your money there, right? And it can speak volumes. Um, however, I would also encourage more people to not just be consumers, um, be an investor, right? So look for these companies that are doing great things and find out if you can invest in them, right? Um, so the SRI, like the socially responsible um, investment funds are more mutual funds, so pooled sort of basket of companies, but you can invest in companies, um, shares, stocks, if you do your own research as to what companies are doing good, right? So, and that would probably be the best way to invest because uh, socially responsible companies do do eventually do better. I think more and more so in the future, they will do better, even more so than now. But I think initially when that whole idea of social, socially being socially responsible and conscious, the market was a little, they kind of dismissed it, didn't see that there was a link. But I think more and more companies are seeing that, that consumers want that, right? And so if cons as consumers, if you demand certain things, um, you can eventually create change. Um, but again, not just being a consumer, but also looking into being an investor um, and really speaking with your money in terms of how you spend it that way. Um, but also, as I talk about going back to increasing your own situation, elevating your own situation financially, it comes down to your own increasing um, the level of financial literacy for yourself, right? Um, I think part of the challenge to that could be that we live in such an information era, so you can get so much information online and it could be overwhelming. But um, so that's where you want to be able to find an advisor if you can or someone who can guide you through that. Um, but um, along with the, um, increasing your financial literacy, I also think building sustainable habits is another thing you can do. Um, and that I don't take power away from. Uh, at the end of the day, we're human beings, we're creatures of habits. If your habits are, you know, destructive, maybe not in a large scale, it's just like little things here and there, right? Like maybe buying Tim Hortons every day and throwing away cups that are supposed to be recyclable, but they're not, you know, um, things like that. Uh, little little things like that, they do eventually compound, right, in terms of the overall effects of um, uh, climate change and just wastes and all that. So uh, I always, if, I don't know if you're aware of the compound, in, compounding effect, whether it be interests or habits, but it really, everyday little habits might not seem like much, but um, just like a hockey stick, towards the end, it kind of swerves up right that hook um, and it's very it's very sudden so every day um, small little negative or positive habits can eventually cause dramatic negative or positive consequences and that's how I see us in terms of humans in terms of our habits along with how we invest our money Right. I don't know if that kind of makes sense, but mm -hmm. I'm trying to draw a picture for you visually yeah that makes <laughs> sense I I think about how important these small habits are and building up the good ones. I want to ask you, do you think we also have a responsibility to take, in addition to taking these small steps, also taking on the question of how do we keep these 
for example, how do we keep these bigger corporations sort of accountable for kind of setting these things up in the first place? Um, we mentioned the example with Timorans. So how do we keep Timorans, for example, accountable for even producing disposable coffee cups in the first place? Or I'm sure there's like a thousand things that mm -hmm. you could fill in that example, but for example, that. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, I, like I said, I think our money speaks volumes. So if we stop going to Tim Hortons mm -hmm. and make it very vocal that that's the reason why, I think Tim Hortons will go out of their way to make some changes. I don't know if it would be immediate, but it will, if it hurts them in their books, it will, I, th I think most companies will be, in, um, will feel the incentive to change. Um, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, a company is, all about profits and so it, it has to make sense for them cost-wise too but if if it's a if it's not like a mom and pop shop we're talking about tim hortons i do think that they probably can wiggle some make some room in their budget for you know making some changes here and there personally that's how but i don't work there i don't look at their um statements so i wouldn't know but i do think we can um I don't want to say the word shaming, <laughs> but I think we can call them out for certain things for sure. And I think we have a lot of uh, channels and avenues to do so, you know, mm -hmm. such as social media or right. through stories or whatever the case may be. Um, I guess speaking of social media and also you mentioned like this culture of information overload with the internet and social media and the sort of like news cycle that we have on 24-7. I think about like what's going on in Ontario right now with the education cuts and also the IPCC C? Did I say three C's? Yes. Okay. CCC. Oh, um, yes. Anyway, they came out with that report a couple of years ago saying that we now in 2020 have about 10 years left before the impacts of global warming are supposed to be irreversible unless we do something about it. And so I think of all the young people now that are in school, especially in the high school age range, because that just seems like such a tender age for this sort of where it's like you're old enough to be really like conscious of like the impact on your future, but young enough that you're not necessarily sure of what you can do. It does seem like they are having to grapple more deeply with these existential questions like can I afford to go to school and does it even matter if the world is on fire by the time I graduate and that's not to say that previous generations didn't feel this, a similar sort of uh, worry about their futures um, I, again I do think part of that is just being able to physically see it through social media or the internet um, but I do want to ask you what your impressions are of how students are feeling in regards to these kind of questions and how are they dealing with these pressures? Hmm. So for me, um, I, the school that I work at is a little different. I work at a special needs school. So um, I, I don't want to say that my students don't fully understand the grasp of, you know, or the gravity or the situation that you see on the news, but um, they're probably yeah a couple steps further out in terms of it being in their consciousness you know mm -hmm. um or their day-to-day -day anyway even though we have like the news playing in the foyer kind of thing 
but um i well i've tried to put my shoes my myself in the shoes of the young young ones today and i definitely do feel like the the younger generation is dealing with bigger questions than even my generation over 10 years ago had to deal with um actually it's close to 20 years now <laughs> i'm revealing my age um but uh i think about it and yeah for sure i, I it it's got to be daunting when the news is constantly talking about climate change and never mind this report, but, you know, there are many other sources that kind of mention this sort of same thing, how we only have a few years to make things right before things are ir irreversible. So um, I can only imagine, uh, like being in a teacher in a special needs school, I'm a little in a bit of a bubble, but... Um, when I talk to teachers who are in an academic school or in other types of schools, um, alternative schools or whatnot, there there is definitely more of an engagement. Um, I I would say from students. I think more so than during my time, really, um, which is a positive that the fact that stu young people can be engaged with um, real world issues. I think at the end of the day, that's um, the job of a public education system to make you know, tr young folks ask questions and be, um, to think crit critically and to um, connect the dots, right? Uh, so I, what I have seen though is definitely an increase in terms of a mental health sort of crisis as we may even call it. Um, and I don't know if they necessarily come from climate change per se for, for my guys anyway, my students that I work with. But um, I think it's just a different world that people are growing up in right now um, with social media, going back to that, going back to, you know, having instant um, internet connection, but at the same time feeling so disconnected when it comes to dealing with people. I think more people have trouble just holding conversations, not just young folks. I'm talking about adults, right? More and more people are just attached to their phones and don't know how to be around silence with others or in conversation with others so um, it's definitely a different world i would I, I can attest to as a teacher being in the system as well but um financially or when it comes to the global warming piece uh, i don't necessarily see it on the day-to-day -day with my guys but uh, I'm, I'm sure it's definitely uh everywhere when in all the social studies class even for the regular schools so mm -hmm. Have you, so I know you've been working in, uh, as a teacher for, is it 10 years now or? Yeah, over 10 years. 10 or, years. Yeah, just hitting have, my 10 years. Ha have you been with uh, special needs students the entire time or? Mm -mm, no. Um, well, I've probably a good half, more than five years with the special needs population. Um, I'm currently at a special needs school, which is all special needs, but I've also worked at other schools with the special needs population. And I've also worked with um, students that have been homeschooled, alternative schools, tech schools, academic schools. So um, I think that's actually like a piece of the conversation that I find often gets missed. And also, it wasn't even something I thought of to think about questions about in terms of like the the disability versus ability. Okay, um, I don't mean to sort of make it such a binary this or that but I think when talking about special needs I I think your experiences with like I guess ability levels 
and how that is accommodated in our in our world, in our system, or in our city, is it seems like it's often overlooked. Oh, um, oh yeah. So I I'm assuming that um, it's not just whether or not um, your students are thinking about the the issues of like the climate crisis. I'm sure they have parents or other loved ones that are thinking about a world that is already not very accommodating, let alone like in the future, how, how is my kid going to do when again, like different natural disasters are happening? Is there going to be a world that is able to accommodate my kid in whatever needs that they need to be met? Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, do you ever talk to parents about these sorts of challenges? Do they ever bring it up? or um, Not so much in terms of climate change, per se. Uh, um, but definitely, uh, it's not only with the parents, it's amongst teachers and staff and support staff, principal. You know, we're constantly trying to figure out um, what can we do to best support them while we have them, but how do we also help transition them out to a place where they are valued, but also they can feel like they're contributing. And you know, honestly, it's such a, it's a, it's a big, big, I'm personally speaking, I think it's a big challenge um, just because it's constantly on my mind and um, when I'm at work. And um, actually, let me backtrack because going back to the whole, uh, not so much of the consciousness being there I gotta say a lot of my students their parents their families they have families you know overseas and of course there are so many things happening around the world and yeah it it, it would affect or could or has effect, affected um, students families whether directly or indirectly um, because you know our students are from everywhere right so if, even though I might not be having the conversations with my students per se um, I'm sure it's being impacted um, on many different levels for the families um, whether I hear about it or not is a whole nother thing but um, so I, I just want to mention that I don't want to neglect that whole piece uh, however going back to what you're saying um, it is a big concern for me and it is one of my life projects to kind of um, build something in the future where I can eventually hire my students that have graduated uh, to help um, the project that I have in mind which I won't say here but if anyone ever wants to take me up for coffee I'd be happy to share uh, but um, it's something definitely that it's constantly on our minds when we do our day-to-day work. And uh, I can only imagine the amount of anxiety and fear that parents would be feeling. Never mind, take away the climate change and, and like just planning for um, a, a student that may need additional help that sometimes families can't even uh, accommodate, right? So... Um, yeah, it's it's one that really. Yeah, you can tell by my face that it's really it, it weighs really hard, um, heavy on me and the people that I work with, but it's also a joy to be working with them on a day to day level. So, and you know, going back to the ability piece, I so just to be specific, uh, I work with students with mild intellectual disability and developmentally delayed 
um, and throughout those two populations, we have autism kind of sprinkled all around. So um, it, it is a it can be a challenging group, uh, but you know everyone within the school has their own um, ability as well. So and sometimes they're outstanding in their ability, right? So it depends on how we see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a question that I guess is a two-part sort of question. Uh, the first part is um, you mentioned that this is something that is on the minds of you and your colleagues, and I wonder how how you sort of like interact with your colleagues about this. And I I, I understand that there is a lot of like challenges that you need to be thinking about. Um, but I do want to bring it back to maybe the climate change piece, just because that's kind of like the context that we are doing this volume. And so I want to ask about that. And the, the other thing is that so much of that seems to be unfairly like such a big burden on teachers. And so it does seem to me that there is so much more that needs to be done on the part of like the general public or like our, our policymakers or, um, just everyone in our society basically. But is there, are there things that you think that we as like a general public could do to support the kind of work that you're doing with your students? Hmm. I'm just trying to give an answer with the climate change piece in mind because it's, it's such a, it's a big problem and big challenge to tackle. And I think you hit it on the nail. It's not something that only teachers can do um, to fix this problem, to educate and create awareness. I think it has to be coming from a, a mass conscious level. And I think it's, we're getting there because the urgency, the sense of urgency is, you know, getting greater at this point. Um, I think in terms of maybe the the first step really is just a change in how we view people with um, different abilities, right? I think maybe that's the, f- the easiest thing. The first thing we can do really is changing our perception when it comes to uh, people of different abilities. And, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, people just want to be seen as people and be um, treated as people and valued as people and it's so it's so easy when we if especially if it's a physical disability for us to kind of make certain preconceived judgments um but um my my students because it's more of an intellectual disability even though they have some have physical challenges um uh, sometimes it's not as like sometimes you can have a conversation with them and not even realize that they're they've got um, a mild intellectual disability uh, until you know you're talking more in depth uh, sort of type of conversation and and then you realize that it's just going way over the head. So when it comes to students like that and like when they become adults, I guess my biggest fear for them really is when they go out into society. Um, first of all, will they be treated with dignity and respect, but not just from everyday people, but I guess my other big concern is from law enforcement. 
right? Because、um, they're not always the best when it comes to making judgment calls.、Um, that's part of their challenge, right? So、um, if they make decisions that might not be best for them.、Um, Or impulsive decisions, and just because you know they happen to be of this class or this race or, or this ethnicity and this background or this religion, even、um, would they could they be treated in a certain way? And I, yeah, for sure, it happens all the time, even in Toronto. Very like we're one of the most multicultural cities, but we see it all the time. I see it all the time,、um, and I experience I've experienced it too as an able-bodied person, right? So.、Um, I think to me that that is one of the biggest concerns is like their safety concern when they leave the school because they're not going to get the accommodations that they're getting in the schools out in society. So,、um, for for as going back to your question as to what can you do is I think first changing your perspective and just seeing them as every,、um, people, your brother, your sister, whatever, your son, daughter, however you want to see it,、um, but also being able to.、Um, Maybe do your part in terms of、um, advocating for them if they're not able to advocate for themselves in certain situations. If if it's not at the law like lawmaking policy level, then like in certain situations on the subway, or if you can kind of understand that, oh, okay, this person needs help or needs someone to voice、um, for them for their sake because they're not able to. Then I think that's I think that's with any vulnerable population, though, right? So. Right. I. I wonder. So I. I actually. So I don't know what the sort of like classroom structure or like class schedule is like. But do you? So I, as someone who is able-bodied and also. Doesn't have any like intellectual disabilities of um, I. I'm having a bit of trouble actually like, wording this question because I'm like how do I how do I talk about this but like so I have like really no sense of like what sort of like what kind of is it similar to like I guess like able-bodied like classes like in terms of like curriculum like. Can you kind of go over、sure. oh, well, the curriculum of, for, at a special needs school? I can only speak for、uh-huh. um, my experience with my school and how it operates. But so none of the students at my school get credits and、uh, high school diplomas. So、um, and the the way we've structured、um, the classes is really based on the students' need or their ability. So we might have one class that's.、Um, We what we say are a bit more fragile in terms of physical ability because they're on wheelchairs or they require nurse or oxygen mask, right? So、um, that that might be one class where that homeroom teacher has to kind of cater to that. And then we've got students who are more sensory, so they got to be constantly moving.、Um, so then that homeroom teacher has to be constantly.、Um, Work around、uh, building the curriculum for them that、um, that that involves constant movement, right? And so it really depends on who you get. And for me,、um, yeah, for me, it really depends on the class that I get as well,、uh, whether it be、um, working with a DD or MID population. I it, I always have to meet them first and kind of build the curriculum around.、Um, 
certain parameters, of course. Uh, but um, it's sad to say that there isn't a lot of support when it comes to the curriculum piece for the special education um, piece of uh, our public education, uh, uh, which sucks when it comes to the support piece. But in some ways, we're able to be a little bit more creative and innovative um, around that. So in spite of that, yeah. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, that totally answers my question. I uh, just was thinking, and I want to say that I'm sorry my ableist uh, bullshit came through with that wording of that question. And generally, as we're talking about public education and special needs, it definitely goes to show how little different needs are thought of by the general public. Uh, and of course, that includes myself. So that's good to know. I did have a question about programs that are outdoor or environmentally based and exist as after school or weekend programs. And I think some of them are even being built into the school curriculum. I think there is this growing recognition that students thrive in different um, learning environments and learn in different ways while still maintaining a certain quality. Um, but I think a lot of these programs tend to assume that you are at a certain ability level, physically or otherwise. Um, I don't know what they teach in schools these days, but does your school have these sorts of outdoor programs that also teach um, similar topics or themes around Mother Earth? Uh, for sure. I mean, just because they might be at a different intellectual or physical um, ability, uh, it doesn't mean that they cannot be in touch with Mother Earth, right? So we go for walks. So one of the great things about our school is that um, uh, the kids appreciate um, taking breaks and going for walks. And um, we do ha incorporate programming as much as we can that involves outdoor camping or uh, outdoor mm -hmm. like day camp or um, throughout the year as much as we can um, based on whatever resources we have. And I, one of the things that we're fighting for is really just get more funding for those things really or to have more support in place. Um, but I do think those uh, outdoor type of education program or incorporating the outdoors is... Uh, so essential, um, especially for our our kids, but also for any school, really, because I think more and more um, we're living in such within concrete sort of confined um, walls, and um, and I think uh, a lot of our interaction is becoming more online, and so we we just as people have become so disconnected with you know, nature and Mother Earth and where our food comes from or how how do we grow things or how long does it take to grow things, right? And what does it require? Um, and a lot of today's world also, whether you're young or old, I think we, we're just so used to getting instant gratification. Um, think about Amazon, right? Just like next day delivery or same day even, I, I guess. Um, so just, I think if we bring it back to uh, nature and how things work outside of, you know, these inventions that we as humans have created. Um, there is a process. There is, um, a lag time or delayed gratification, um, planting the seeds and harvesting. Like there is so much work between that too, right? And I think uh, those things have 
easily been just kind of forgotten in in schools but also in workplaces so um i think there's immense value in bringing that in as much as you can early on but as, for our students like they totally appreciate it yeah mm-hmm. i think about how like important that is especially like when you're talking about in like a setting like the classroom because i think about how many kids and also adults that just don't have the same sort of like access when it comes to like the space but also the time and the resources and a lot of other factors um yeah and so it's certainly a lot to think about um how do you take care when it comes to your any sort of senses of like anxiety that you might have whether that's about climate change or public education or finances mm-hmm. um yeah how do you take care for me i find the frequent need especially after my day job of working with the um the students that i work with but even in any school you, you're just so drained and tired because you spend the whole day with teenagers <laughs> so um i i tend to shut down like i need some time just to myself where i'm not interacting with anyone and i don't like going on my phone or on social media anyway um where um i'm inundated by everyone else's life like if i go on the, my phone it's just to read up on stuff or to listen to music or something but um i i find that i always need to have some time to myself to stay uh, to recharge um i also like to during those times i i also like to go for walks as frequently as i can um, I'm not much of a runner, but uh, I actually Same. hate cardio. <laughs> Same. I feel that. <laughs> yeah. But I do love walking. So, and I can walk for hours um, at my own pace. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like it, I, I, I guess I just like to escape um, by walking or through silence or through listening to podcasts or sometimes I'm just doing my own, you know, learning, whether it be personal development or just learning about the industry um, and just ongoing training on products because we also have to be updated on those. Um, And yeah, I think that's how I personally tend to cope. I used to listen to a lot more music back in the day, but I've, I've found value more so in silence nowadays. So, so I'm okay without music. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, so do you have any advice on on ways that people can cope with financial or eco-anxiety? <laughs> um, so I guess I can leave you with some last few words of practical tips. And uh, the first one is definitely education. So financial literacy, um, whether it be through books or online resources or touching base with myself or any other financial advisor, that's definitely um, a way to navigate the information overload. Um, but not just the education piece, you need to also apply what you learn and what you know, right? And so I think um, definitely don't let analysis paralysis stop you from starting. Uh, and starting in terms of today rather than later, because our tendency as human beings is to procrastinate. So. Um, we keep saying, I'll, I'll look into it later, or I'll put this in place later. But really, um, tomorrow comes 
never, <laughs> right? Or disaster hits before you even get things in place. So uh, definitely take care of things that you need to take care of from the get-go. And it's also not about how much you make. It's really about how much you keep. So learning, learning, you know, conscience budgeting and spending, but also learning the different tax advantages that the government allows for you to take and um, just knowing the system. Um, and um, the other thing that's huge, I would say, is discipline. So when it comes to money management, it really comes down to discipline. So like I said, it's not, it, you don't need a lot to get started, even if it's like 20 bucks a month. Um, the, the act of, you know, putting something away for your future, it really comes down to discipline and habits. So build those positive habits that are going to be sustainable for you and your family long-term. Um, and hopefully those little tidbits will help you get started. Awesome. It's a good note to leave on. Thank you, Esther, for, for joining us. Thank you, Harriet, for the invitation. And I just want to say that I feel this conversation as big of a topic as it kind of felt when you first asked me about it. I'm glad that I was able to share my thoughts and my own takes as a financial advisor, as well as an educator and as a concerned citizen as well. Right. So where can people find you? Uh, they can find me at, uh, well, you can look for me on social media if we're going to talk about social media. I'll be honest, I'm not very good at updating. Um, although I, f I do feel like I should probably be on there a bit more just in terms of communicating, um, my brand. But so you can find me on social media and Twitter. So Instagram and Twitter mostly. Uh, my handle is Miss MS underscore Esther Kim. So that's Esther with an H. <laughs> uh, and then you can also, if you have any, you know, personal questions, you can just uh, email me at ekfinancialwellness at gmail.com. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, I, before we close off, I want to give a special shout out to Giant Doma for helping us with the recording and the production of this, this conversation. So thank you. Snap, snap. snap. <laughs>